0: reading your Bibles better, uh, I hope that these times together have helped you to see some of the, the uh, broader themes and, uh, and other things that God is doing in the world, uh, especially in these early stages of Israelite history. And so now we're going to close out uh, Deuteronomy, the, the Pentateuch, uh, the last book of the, of the Pentateuch uh, leading up to Israel going into the, into the Promised Land. Having three children, as uh, some of you do have three or even more, you know how important it is to keep order in the house. With multiple children in the house, things often get chaotic very quickly, and in order to keep things from getting too chaotic, you need to have your children's attention, and you need for them to do what you're asking them to do. And in our house, we have uh, three little words that we say, a little phrase. It's this, listen and obey listen and obey. Now, you can ask me later how good my kids are at actually paying attention to that. But frequently when they get out of line or they get, get wild or we're trying to get their attention, we remind them that what they need to do is to listen and obey, that, that, that Nikki and I are are God's gift to them, for better or for worse, as parents. Uh, and he has charged us with, with uh, raising them to know Christ, to love him, to live in light of the gospel. And what we need for them to do sometimes is just to listen and obey. It's our job to care for them. It's their job to do uh, what we ask of them. Uh, now, Lord willing, we do that in gracious and Christ-like ways um, but those, those two words, listen and obey, are incredibly important in our house. My guess is you've probably used them with your children as well. It's also something that God uses with his people, Israel, before they go into the promised land. You, you'll see probably already from your worship guide tonight, the, the, the subtitle for the, this study in Deuteronomy is this, remember and obey. Not listen and obey, but remember and obey. And those two themes crop up all throughout deuteronomy and we're going to see why here in just a little while as we look at the particulars of this book beginning with its author uh, we see that it is unstated uh, in the book of deuteronomy but traditionally and in the course of scripture understood to be moses but maybe with a little bit of help if you have your bibles open and you can get there quick enough if you turn to deuteronomy chapter 34 by the end of deuteronomy moses has died and uh, but before Deuteronomy ends, um, Moses is dead, and then there's some more that's said. So either Moses is uh, is writing from a prophetic uh, standpoint, or after Moses died, somebody added sort of this eulogy, this epitaph, uh, to the book of Deuteronomy. In uh, Deuteronomy 34, in uh, verse 10, we read we read this: There was not a prophet, uh, there there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses. ...whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all of his servants into his land. And for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. It's unlikely that Moses would write that about himself. Um, most scholars, many scholars believe that Joshua or someone else came along and kind of added this sort of eulogy, this epitaph to the end of Deuteronomy, um, just to kind of round it out. So, but other than that, the, the broad swath, the vast majority of Deuteronomy is attributed to Moses and his authorship. The date is the same as the of the Pentateuch, sometime between 1400 and 1200 BC, again, depending on when you date the Exodus from Egypt, uh, likely happening during the wilderness period before Israel would enter into the new land. As we look at Deuteronomy in summary, we see this the title of the book, uh, Deuteronomy, means literally Second Law, which comes from the Latin Deuteronomium. Yeah. Uh, Deutero meaning second, and nomos meaning law. So in the Hebrew Bible, it's not actually called Deuteronomy; it's actually called Devarim. That's the title of this book, which just means it's a Hebrew word for words or saying. Um, we see in Deuteronomy one, chapter chapter one, verse one: "These are the words; these are the things that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan." So the Hebrew Bible gets its title of this uh, uh, of this book, Devarim, from that Hebrew word for words. These are the words Moses said. The book of Deuteronomy itself is effectively Moses' farewell sermon to the Israelites as they stand at the bank of the Jordan River preparing to enter into the Promised Land, to take over, to conquer Canaan. The book, this book, is structured around three speeches or three sermons that respectively remind Israel of their history to this point. They recapitulate the law as it was given at Sinai and they give the promised blessings and curses for obedience and disobedience to the law. As such, this book, Deuteronomy, functions as God's giving of the same law, but to a new generation of Israelites, to a generation that will not like their parents, uh, they will obediently take possession of the promised land as God has called them to do. You'll remember when we looked uh, two months ago at the book of Numbers, the book of Numbers ends with, all of the old uh, rebellious generation having died off and a new generation having risen up. And Moses preparing to take them to where they would be at the beginning of, of Deuteronomy. As we read through this, the last book of the Pentateuch, we, we see at least three major themes. And we'll, we'll try to hit on these uh, as we work through this book tonight. First, remember the Lord who chose you. Remember the Lord who chose you. Now this is specifically to the Israelites, but there's application for Christians as well. Secondly, remember the Lord who saved you. God chooses Israel as his people. He saves them from Egypt. And then third, remember to keep the Lord's commands. He chooses them to be a blessing to the nations. He saves them from slavery. And he gives them commands that they must follow as his covenant people. As we look at Deuteronomy and the scope of redemption history, creation, fall, redemption, consummation... Certainly, Deuteronomy focuses on uh, or at least reminds us that we are fallen. There's a law that reminds us of our sin and our need for redemption, but it also begins to point to ultimate redemption. So take your uh, take your crayon or your, your gel roller pen and circle those words, fall and redemption, because that's kind of where Deuteronomy is. Now, we're, we don't get fully into redemption, uh, or at least not the fullest uh, Completed state of redemption like we have in Christ in Deuteronomy. But there are some clear pointings to that day in this book. Now, as you read Deuteronomy on your own this week, as I know you're all making plans to do, uh, do this. Bear this in mind. The genre of Deuteronomy, the kind of literature that it is, is mostly law-giving and exhortation. But it's in the broader uh, context of the historical narrative of the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible are really one book. But it's such a long book, it would have to have been broken up into several different scrolls. And so it's broken up into five scrolls traditionally. So we have five books in our English Bibles today. But Deuteronomy is part of that whole larger story from Genesis 1, beginning there and leading up to the end of of this book. So because Deuteronomy was originally delivered to the Israelites under the Old Covenant, that is under the law, not all of the instruction that we get in Deuteronomy... Um, nor the various blessings and curses for obedience or disobedience are directly, there's not one-to-one application for all of these things for Christians today. Now, some parts of the law, absolutely, there is one-to-one application for us. But other parts of the law, not so much, because Christ on the cross um, didn't abolish the law, he fulfilled the law. And so some parts of the law are still effective because there are aspects of God that never change, and things that God always calls of his people to do. There are other aspects of the law um, that were for a certain... Time as Israel was a representative nation of people in the world to be the, the, the people the, that would be a vehicle of God's blessing to the world. So, when you're reading Deuteronomy, then ask yourself the following questions First, what is this text telling me about God and his character? We see we've, we've referred to that with all of these historical narrative uh, passages, all these, these books of historical narrative. Secondly, what does this text reveal to me about God's sovereign pursuit of sinners? What does this text reveal to me about God's sovereign pursuit of sinners? And thirdly, how do I actively remember God's faithfulness in my life? How am I engaged in a regular way in remembering God's faithfulness to me in my life, in the life of our church, in the life of your family? So now let's look at the text of Deuteronomy. Again, said the the subtitle remember and obey uh, and and these things are going to come up as we work through this book. So the way I've intended to work through Deuteronomy, I think, is uh, the best way that I know to do it is how it's already presented in in the in the context of Moses's three speeches, his first, second and third speech. So we're going to look at those um, briefly and generally tonight. So first Moses's first speech is something like remember who got you here. That's the content of his first sermon to Israel. Remember who got you here, and the person who got them to where they are, out of Egypt, through surviving forty years of wandering in the wilderness, to the bank of the Jordan, about to conquer Canaan and take over the promised land, is first God, the promise keeper. He, or the, excuse me, God, the promise maker, who's also promise keeper. We just sang that song. From nearly the very beginning of Moses' first speech in Deuteronomy, he is reminding the Israelites that they are a chosen people based upon the promises of God. God chooses them and makes promises with them, for them. And that, up to this point, God has made good on his promises. He has been faithful to do what he said he would do. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 8-10. through 10. There we read this. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of... The land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. At that time I said to you, I'm not able to bear you by myself, but the Lord your God has multiplied you. And behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven." That verse ought to bring to your mind the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 15, verse 5. That his descendants would outnumber the stars in the heavens. And here Moses is saying to the people, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. What does that indicate? That God who made the promise has kept his promise. There in Genesis 15, this is exactly what we read from God to Moses. He brought Abraham outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. They said, so shall your offspring be. God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. This much is true. Moses reminds the people that the same God who called Abraham from the town of Ur is the same God that has brought them to this point. And more than that, the Israelites themselves, in their great number, are proof that God does fulfill, that God does answer his promises. Remember who got you here, God the promise maker and promise keeper. Secondly, God whom the Israelites spurned or rebelled against. In Deuteronomy 1, verses 34 through 46, we get this reminder, this kind of extended passage uh, retelling of the rebellion of the people of Israel in several different places. Once in the golden calf incident, and then also in their rebellion against the Lord in Numbers chapter 25. Even as God is the one who has made and kept promises to his people, he has himself been rejected by them, spurned by them, disobeyed by his own people that he has chosen and made promises to. And this is incredibly important for this new generation of Israel to remember, particularly as they're about to be brought in to this new land by the God um, who, who previously kept their um, ancestors from being able to go into the land because of their rebellion. It's this generation, this new generation of Israelites standing before Moses who were the children of of those who believed the fearful report of the Israelite spies and of those who worshiped false gods in Numbers 25. This is the next generation. Their parents were the disobedient ones who had to die in the wilderness. I would hope that in this we might see God's grace to Israel to still fulfill his promises to his Beloved, chosen people, in spite of their previous rejection of Him. How many times, Christian, do we spurn God's goodness to us? How many times do we reject His kind correction and seek our own way? Even as God's faithfulness to Israel was of His own accord, is His own doing, despite their recalcitrant rebellion, so also is His grace to us persistent today. God still pursues with grace His people. Not because of what we've done or because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is. Christ, the only sinless God-man, has himself done for us what we could not do for ourselves. In taking our sin upon himself at the cross, he has borne our grief and punishment so that God the Father might, both, might be both just in punishing sin and gracious in forgiving it. See the consistency with which God sovereignly works and distributes grace to the undeserving. Often, not often, always in spite of ourselves. He did it with Israel. He does it with believers today. So he's God, the promise maker. He's God whom the Israelites spurned. is also the one who has brought them to where they are. Is God who cared for them in the wilderness. Though the parents of this, new, this Israelite generation that we see here in Deuteronomy had failed and would not see the promised land, God cares for them until their death so that their children and grandchildren, a new faithful generation, would inherit the promise that they had previously forfeited. See what Moses says about God's provision for them in the wilderness. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 7. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness... These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. Just as God is faithful to, to bear with his people, to bring them to this, um, uh, to this place, to extend grace to them even when they rebel, he is also good to care for them in the wilderness. And they do well to remember that. Not just the manna and the quail and the water when they needed it, but everything that he has done to bring them to this place. Then Moses closes out this of his first sermons in in chapter 4, verses 1 through 40, by by saying kind of this, uh, Remember, and by the way, never don't remember. That's a a double negative way of saying always remember. But remember and never don't remember. Never don't remember. Perhaps the most important part of Moses' first speech here in chapter 4 he several times warns the Israelites to remember the Lord, sternly cautioning them at times against even the slightest bit of forgetfulness. In chapter 4, verse 9, we read this, Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen. In verses 15 and 16, Therefore watch yourselves very carefully. Beware lest you act corruptly. Verse 19, and beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Verse 23, take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God. Ultimately, we find that the warning is not to forget the things of God, but not to forget God himself. Not just the things he's done, not just the things he said. Don't forget who he is. Don't forget him. The signs that God performed to bring his people out of Egypt, their miraculous care in the wilderness, the covenant that they have with God are all from God. They're all for his glory. And so that the nation of Israel might be a blessing to the world. And to remember the Lord and to keep his commands is, as chapter 4 verse 1 says, that they may live. This is chapter 4 verse 1. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them that you may live. Obedience to the Lord is not just to escape death. Obedience to the Lord is life itself. Walking in intimate knowledge and loving relationship with the Lord. That is life. Christian, are you living today? Friend, for you who are far from God tonight, see that the things you are looking to for meaning in your life are only sapping your soul from real life in relationship with your Creator being a good person, being charitable, being sacrificial and giving, just being nice to your neighbors, money for yourself, cars, vehicles, relationships with other people, all of that. None of that will give you real life, will give you real meaning. Quite the opposite, it is sucking life out of your soul because it's not the one thing that you do need. Obedience to the Lord, knowing Him. Walking in intimate relation with him, relationship with him. That is life. That is life. That's Moses' first speech very quickly. His second speech is quite a bit longer. It extends from chapter 4, verse 44, through chapter twenty-six, 19. Don't worry, we're not going to look at it all specifically. That's what you're going to do later tonight. Because the Cavaliers are going to smoke the Celtics. It's not even going to be worth watching. It's not. The NBA is terrible. Preaching's way better. God's word is so much better. The second speech that Moses gives. So his second speech is is marked by three words. uh, Three words that that, um, kind of, I think, set the tone for everything that happens there. You have those there in your guide. Hear, fear, and love. Hear, fear, and love. If you know those three things in relation to God, hear God, fear God, love God, you'll be all right as a Christian. If you know those things and you're practicing those things, you'll be all right as a believer. Now, do those things in the context of God's word. But hear him, fear him, love him. The second speech that Moses gives at the at the edge of the River Jordan is primarily a recapitulation, that is, a review, a restatement of the law that was received at Mount Sinai. We saw that already in in Exodus chapters twenty and following. We saw that further explicated and clarified in Leviticus. I won't go over all of that again tonight. The retelling Amen, someone says. The retelling of the law at this point is important for Israel for at least two reasons. First, this is, remember, a new generation of Israel that will enter and conquer the land of Canaan. Now, while it's certain that they already knew the law, had heard it from their parents, or from their grandparents, or from the priests uh, as they were wandering in the wilderness, here they're getting it formally from Moses at a critical time in their history as a people, before they're going to do what their parents failed to do. It is, in some ways, in some senses, a call to their identity, again, as the people of God. Called to be holy because the Lord their God is holy. But in a second sense, the giving of the law again at the edge of the promised land is also a cautionary word to this generation that they not be like their parents and doubt the Lord. That they not be like their parents and fear the Canaanites and spurn the promise. It's a challenge at this point, at the, at the edge of their inheritance, to choose God in a manner of faithfulness unlike the generation that came before much of this speech is familiar to us because we've read it before in Exodus and in Leviticus. The laws are important for us to know and to understand because they were important to the Israelites, certainly. These were the codes of conduct, the boundaries of relationship and instruction for worship that define God's people under the Old Covenant. This is how they were to live so that they might be a blessing to the nations. Admittedly, it is in many places difficult to... to Uh, To know just how the law relates to and applies to the christian life today as christ has fulfilled the law We're not we're not uh, bound to the law in its entirety I wish we had time to go through how to apply the law rightly in all of its ways tonight um, But we don't so uh, next time or another time, but one thing we do know it's hard to know exactly how it applies But one thing we do know the law was more about god and his character and still is more about god and his character than it is about What must people what people must do? The law reveals God's holiness. It reveals his moral perfection to Israel and ultimately to the world. It reveals God's character and God's nature even to us today that he is holy. That he is utterly unlike anything else that we could possibly conceive of. The speech of Moses here in these chapters is peppered with these three words that we saw. That seem to set the tone for this speech. And which ultimately help us as Christians to understand the law and to apply it rightly in our context. These three words that we just saw earlier, hear, fear, and love. Let's look at the first, hear. This is the Hebrew word shema. It means simply hear or listen. It's a word that calls to attention the people who hear it, or the people who are within range of hearing. Think of the image of the medieval town crier in the city center ringing his bell and shouting, Hear ye, hear ye, right? He's calling the attention of the people in the city. And so, like a crier of the divine word, Moses, several times in this speech, cries, Hear, O Israel, pay attention, perk up, mark these words, listen to what I'm saying. Chapter 5, verse 1. Moses summoned all Israel. He said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. Chapter 6, verse 3. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, speaking of the statutes and the laws again, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Chapter 20, verses 2 and 4. Two through four. When you draw near to battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart be faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. Today, when a preacher or a pastor stands to read and preach the word, or when you open the Bible in your Sunday school class or in your small group Bible study, or when you're in the quiet of your own study, just you and the scriptures in front of you, do you, are you calling yourself to the same kind of intense attention that you might listen to and give devoted hearing to the word of God? Do we say as Baptists, who are, who are historically known as people of the book, do we say things like, Hear, O Stephen, the word of the Lord and be careful to do it? Hear, O John, and do not be forgetful? Hear, O Kathy, the Lord is speaking. If we don't call ourselves to the same attention that, that Moses called Israel to here in the wilderness as they're about to go in and take the land that God has promised, we risk missing and ignoring and ultimately disobeying the word. When you come to God's word, do you come expecting to hear from him? Do you call yourself to attention when you read God's word? The call to hear, the call to listen is ultimately a call to act on what we have heard. If indeed, as we believe the Bible is the word of God, inspired by him, written by uh, Holy Spirit, inspired human authors, then we owe it not only our attention, but also our action. Hear the law, be careful to do it, is Moses' constant cry in Deuteronomy. Read the word and do it, is the cry of James in the New Testament. In James chapter 1, verses 23 through 25, James says this, If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, and he goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts he will be blessed in his doing do you hear from god's word not only expecting to to or do you give god's word your attention not only expecting to hear from it but also expecting to do something as a result of it i would hope so i fear there are far too many christians in the world and, and, and I place myself in this sometimes too. Uh, we're content to hear from the word, to consume the word of God, to hear good preaching, to sit in a good Sunday school class, but not to actually do the things that it tells us to do. We fill large churches and stadiums for conferences to hear people preach the word of God. And yet the gospel seems to be conspicuously absent in so many places in the world in our neighborhoods, on our streets, sometimes even in our own homes with our children. And yet we give devoted time to hearing the word preached, but but no time, no energy to doing. We have two, three, four hours on a Sunday like today where we're spending time in in, in hearing from the word of God. Are we spending as many hours during the week in doing what we have heard, in putting into practice what God has called us to do? I pray that we would. I pray that we would hear and hear that we might act. Secondly, fear. This word uh, also peppers, also seasons, if you will. uh, Moses' second speech here. This is the Hebrew word yare. It just means fear or be in terror, as most of our English translations faithfully recount. Fear is not something we like to associate with God. It's not. We like to think of God's love as a sort of divine safety blanket. Don't, Don't be afraid of God. We say he loves you and he cares for you. And those things are true. God absolutely does love you. He does care for you far more and far greater than you could ever understand or ever imagine. But at the same time, we do well to fear him. We do well to stand in terror of God. Perhaps C.S. Lewis put it best in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where in this, uh, there's one scene where the character Susan first hears of Aslan the lion uh, from Mr. Beaver. In his conversation with her, Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Such is true of God as well. He is not safe, but he is good. He is holy and it is his holy goodness that is truly fearsome to unholy creatures like us. And so it is right for Moses to call Israel to fear God as he does several times in the second of his sermons. Chapter 6 verses 1 and 2. This is the commandment, the statutes, the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments which I command you. Chapter 6, verse 13. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Chapter 6, verse 24. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. Chapter 8, verse 6. They left that one out in my Bible. There it is. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. Chapter 10, verse 12. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? Chapter 13, verse 4. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. I wonder, church, today, do, do we fear God for His holy goodness? Do we fear Him for His holy goodness? Do we tremble at the thought of facing a perfectly holy God when we know what we know about our own sin? Even saved by Christ, for, forgiven and washed by His blood, held securely in the hands of God because of our faith in Christ, does the prospect of meeting a holy God still strike fear in your heart? It should a little bit. It should. It should. Certainly, our faith in Jesus does give us confidence to approach this holy God without fear of death. But I dare say a good lion is still a lion, and it is right to approach him in humble fear. Amen. Moses says, here; He says, fear. Finally, in these several chapters, he says, love. This is the Hebrew word, ahava. It implies a deep, sincere, devoted affection for someone and it is commanded of Israel as they enter the new land, several places. Here we go. Chapter 6, verse 5. This is often called the Shema, which is the Shema, again, that word, word means here. But this is a passage, uh, six, chapter 6, verse 5, and the several verses afterward, that the Israelite children would have to learn as they were growing up. They would repeat it daily, regularly. If you have Jewish friends, if you ask them to repeat the Shema, my guess is whether they're practicing Jews or not, they probably know what it is. But it begins this way. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Chapter 10, verse 12. Now, Israel, what is the Lord? We saw this just earlier. Lord your God require of you, but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Chapter 11, verse 1. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. Same chapter, verse 13. And if you will indeed obey my commandments, that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give, you, uh, give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain, the later rain, that you may gather in your grain, in your wine, in your oil. Verse 22 of chapter 11. For if you will be careful to do all his commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways, holding fast to him, then he will drive out all of these nations before you. You'll dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourselves. Of course, we all think at this point of the greatest commandment that Jesus gives, I think, in Matthew chapter twenty two, verse thirty seven, right? The greatest commandment is this you shall love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. But have you ever thought about the reason for why Israel and why we as Christians should love the Lord? Why should we love him? Is it because of his kindness? Is it because of his generosity? Is it because of his fearsome nature, his holiness, something like that? Look at chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, verses 7 and 8. There Moses says, "...you shall teach these, these commandments to your children diligently, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise." You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets before your eyes. Excuse me, that is the wrong chapter. Good. See, somebody else, somebody else figured it out. That's good. Um, 7, 7 and 8. Not 6, 7 and 8. I fat-fingered that one. Chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. It's just on the next page. Close enough. It was because... Uh, It was not because, so this is why, why has the Lord chosen you? It's not because you were more in number than any of the other peoples that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Why is it that we love the Lord? Why is it that Israel is to love the Lord? Because he loved them. Do you see this? That Israel is called to love God precisely because he loved them first and chose them first? John says it just as clearly for us in his first uh, of his epistles. 1 John 4.19 We love because he first loved us. God's choosing of Israel is an act of his eternal love for them. And for the nations, by the way, to whom they shall be a blessing. His choosing to save you, Christian... Is an act of his eternal love. You are saved today. Not not because you chose God. But because he loves you. So magnificent is God's love. That in it he sends his son to die in the place of rebellious people. Like Israel. Like me. Like you. So then as you read the law here in Deuteronomy. The second of Moses' speech is. Do these things. Hear the word. Give it your attention. Let it sink into your head and into your heart. Then see the holiness of God in the law and fear him. See how perfect he is and fear him. But then do not fail to see God's love for Israel and ultimately his love for you in Christ and respond the only way that anyone who is loved this way can respond by loving him in return with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. Hear, fear, love the Lord your God. Third, we have Moses' final speech, chapters 27 through 30. There are more chapters than 30, but his speech kind of ends after that. The title of this sermon, if I could give it one, would be something like, Choose Life Through Obedience. Choose life, Israel, by obeying God. In light of the reminder of Israel's history and what God has Uh, brought them through and what he has brought them to and in light of the law that god has given there's a choice to be made by israel at this point to obey the lord or to repeat the faithlessness of their parents loving obedience of the lord will bring with it the blessing of the lord but selfish rebellion will bring with it subsequent relative curses chapter 28 verse 1 we read this this is the Beginning of the the blessings uh, uh, passage. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all of his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And for several other verses, Moses goes on about the other blessings that God will give to Israel for their obedience. Blessings of prosperity in the land where they're going. Blessings of the constant favor of the Lord upon the people who love Him and who keep His commands. There's about 14 verses of blessings. But then right after that, in verses 15 through 68, about 43 verses, we have curses. It's almost three to one, curses to blessings. Okay? Why? Well, just as the reward for obedience to God is great, greater still, it seems, are the curses for disobedience. Look at chapter 28, verses 45 through 51. This is an extended passage, but just hang in there with me. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until you're destroyed, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies Whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst in nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle. A nation whose language you do not understand. A hard-faced nation who shall not uh, respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It it also shall not leave you grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds, or the young of your flock, until they have caused you to perish. This is six verses of 43 about curses that Israel will, will incur upon themselves for their disobedience to the Lord. It's a small bit of the curse. And this is, if I will, a nicer bit of the curses. Read the rest of the curses. And see what else happens. A small bit of the curse that will follow for disobedience to the Lord. And as you read the rest of them, you'll find again that this is relatively mild. Notice this though. That both the blessings and the curses against Israel or for Israel for their obedience or the disobedience are from whom? God. Blessing and curse for them from the same source whether they obey or disobey. It's not like God rewards those who obey him and leaves the cursing to come by the hand of Satan. God is good and loving. Yes. But he's also just and a righteous judge who is not afraid to mete out justice against rebellion and sin and wickedness. God's not afraid of your sin. God's not afraid of of offending you because of your disobedience. God doesn't need you to like him. He doesn't. And so in... Israel's rebellion he doesn't need that he chose them from nothing from a from a nobody named Abraham in a land that no one knew of right to make a nation out of him God doesn't need him God chose him God doesn't need us he chooses us we are not indispensable in the eyes of the Lord and so we do well to obey him the blessing and the curses then lead Moses to the point that we find in chapter 30 verse 11. There, Moses says this, this is the commandment that I command you, uh, excuse me, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. He goes on to say, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Is it not encouraging to know that the commands of the Lord are not burdensome? That it's not a burden to obey the Lord? That it's for our good that we might live? What is all of the law but to love the Lord and to love one another? As Jesus sums up in Matthew 27. It's not burdensome. Knowing this, Moses calls witnesses to these commands. Knowing that the commands are not hard. And he's putting a choice before the people. To obey or to disobey. To be blessed or to be cursed by God. Then he calls witnesses against this. In chapter 30, verses 19, verse 19. He says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. That I have set before you life and life and death, blessing, and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice, holding fast to Him, for He is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. Choose life, Moses says, by choosing obedience. Choose to live by obeying the Lord. The call to choose life is just as clear to each of us today because God has loved us and because he sent his son to die in our place, he calls us to choose life by placing faith in Jesus, by turning from our sin and in love, obeying God, living a life of faithful obedience to his word. The Lord is life. He is life for Israel. He is life for you. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse six, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you uh, you know the way to the Father? Is my question to us today. Do you know how to get to God? Are you living in obedience to the truth? Do you know and have real life because you know Jesus as Lord? The call to Israel in Deuteronomy is to choose life by obeying the God who chose them and loved them. And we know how the history of Israel plays out. They don't obey God. They don't lovingly choose him in return. They eventually worship false gods in the land that they will eventually possess. They bring idols into God's temple and worship them alongside the Holy of Holies and everything else that is there. And what does God do? He sends them off into exile. Right? Chapter 28. Verse 49, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, so on and so forth. It's exactly what we see happening in Israel's history. They disobey, and God does what he said he would do. Do we treat the promise of heaven and the reality of hell with the same, same sort of seriousness even today? Knowing that, knowing that heaven, knowing that eternal life With God comes by love for him, faith in Christ, obedience to what he has called us to do. We treat that as a reality, but sometimes we don't, we don't treat hell as a reality. We like the promise of heaven. We don't like the reality of hell. But God tells Israel, look, obey me. It's life for you. Disobey me. It's death for you. And Israel disobeys. And what do they receive? Death. All but a remnant are destroyed. Do we, Christian, do we treat the promise of heaven as, as something that is real, but, but the, the promise of hell is something that is far off, is not really actually going to happen? I would say look at Deuteronomy. Look at the course of the Old Testament. See that God is good to his word. That to not know him by faith in Christ and be under the cover of Christ's blood for the forgiveness of your sins is to walk in disobedience and ultimately into death and eternal separation from God, don't find yourself in that place today. Find yourself in God. Find life by knowing Him through Christ, His Son. So then, now that you're really excited to read Deuteronomy, let me point you to some places where you can see the, the, the arrows, the signposts to Jesus, to Christ, even in Deuteronomy. First, this this is on the very back side of your uh, of your worship guide. Jesus is the better King, Priest, and Prophet. He's the better king, priest, and prophet. There's this really interesting section in Deuteronomy from chapter 17, verse 14, through chapter 18, verse 22, where here in the middle of Moses' second speech um, is this place where the Lord gives qualifications for the king that Israel will undoubtedly and inevitably demand. Look at chapter 17, verses 18 through 20. We read this. Speaking of the king. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. So you see that the king of Israel is to sit down and write out word for word Deuteronomy for himself that he may have a personal copy of God's word. And it shall be with him and he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and these statutes and doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. When you read this, when you hear what Moses says, what God through Moses says here, do you not think of Jesus who, when tempted in the wilderness by Satan, replied with the word of God? Words, actually, all of them from the book of Deuteronomy. Words written on his heart. He didn't have a copy in front of him, he knew it. It's in his heart. Jesus is the king who knows and keeps his father's word perfectly. I don't think it's any coincidence that Jesus responds to Satan in the wilderness specifically with words from Deuteronomy. I don't think it's any coincidence at all. He's demonstrating, I am king. The good king who keeps the law. And then just after this we read of the priests in chapter 18, verse 2. Where God says that they shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. We look at Jesus, the sinless son of God, God in flesh. Who the author of Hebrews calls the greater high priest. And in his life we see that Jesus had no fortune. He had no land, he had no posterity, he had no inheritance, he had no wealth. It was his food to do the will of the Father who sent him. And when he died, he was buried in a borrowed tomb, but was raised again to retain his rightful place at the right hand of the Father. Christ's inheritance was not in this world. The priest's inheritance, their portion was not in this world. The Lord is their portion. The Lord is their inheritance. And so Christ, as the perfect high priest, understood that as well. The Lord is my portion. To do his will is my food. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father. And then in chapter 18, verse 15 and following, we have God's promise to Israel to send a prophet, a prophet like Moses to Israel. This is verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Verse 18, God says, I will, rise, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. We read that, that God is going to send a prophet like Moses from among Israel with his own words in his mouth. And we look at Jesus' ministry of teaching, teaching in parables, teaching of the law, divine words from a prophet, not just like Moses, better than Moses. God in flesh, Jesus is the better king, priest, and prophet. And Deuteronomy is already preparing Israel for him. Secondly, Jesus has secured for us a better homeland. He's secured for us a better homeland This we've looked at before in our study through the the Pentateuch, particularly in in Numbers. We did a couple months ago. But again, we find that as Israel is looking forward in Deuteronomy to a land of promise, in Jesus, we have the promise of a better homeland. Not one that is built by men, but one that is kept in heaven for us. An eternal homeland that will never fade away. In the book of Revelation, chapter 21. We read this. Then came... uh, Excuse me. Uh, Verse nine. Then came one of the seven angels who had one of the seven bulls. um, No, I'm sorry. Verse one. (laughs) I'm terrible tonight. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Jesus has secured for us. That homeland, the new Jerusalem, where we will live forever, those of us who are in Christ, in the presence of God, our creator, Christ, our savior, for all eternity. Thirdly, to be chosen in Christ is to choose him in return with love for him and obedience to his commands. It's abundantly clear from the book of Ephesians that certainly just as God chooses Israel and loves them, That God also chooses those that he has saved by faith in Jesus. In the same way that he had chosen Israel to be the people through whom he would bless the nations, he chooses the church to be those who will take the gospel to the nations. And so we read in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 4 through 6 this. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Yes, church, we are chosen, we are called, we are predestined for adoption as sons to the praise of God's grace, scripture says. But not that we might grow complacent. Rather, in the second half of the book of Ephesians, we have Paul's exhortation to the church, knowing that in light of what God has done to choose to save you, to give you faith, to believe that you might receive the blessing of salvation. Now, in response to that, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. God has chosen you to be saved. Yes, he has given you faith to believe in Christ. Yes, but he also calls you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. We have to choose him. We have to love him in return. Paul is saying that we who are chosen in Christ, who are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus, are called to live lives of willful, chosen obedience and holiness, just as Israel was. Just as Israel was. Are we doing that? Knowing that we're saved by faith in Christ all because of God's grace. Are we walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called? Are we living daily to remember who God is? What he has done, what he's brought us through, what he's brought us to. And are we daily obeying his commands? We have a very tangible way here tonight to do just that. To remember what he's done and to obey him. And that through the Lord's Supper.